Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. If you're new to our community uh, and this is your first time, I hope you feel welcome. You feel uh, Spencer, I'd love to shake your hand, give you a fist bump, whatever you're fancy, and uh, meet you. Um, and if you're curious about faith and Jesus and religion or whatever it may be, and you're just curious, I hope that this is a space where you can wrestle and you can seek and you can ask questions and you can pursue um, the curiosity that might be within you. Uh, our heartbeat at United City is very simple, and it's to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And we get this idea of practicing the way of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives this uh, final metaphor talking about that a person who puts his teaching to practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. That when storms come, the house is able to stand. And let's be honest, over the last few years, we've been living in turbulent times, chaotic times. The storms have come, the winds have come, but if we practice the way of Jesus, if we have rhythms and habits that orient us into the way and road of Jesus, I believe that we will be able to stand. Our Eastertide teaching series was launched last week where Jordan did, I think, an incredible job opening it up. Now, let me say I'm biased because she's my wife, but she did a killer job opening up last week, launching into this I am teaching series, looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. In the theology world, these seven I am's are also referred to as the seven predicates of Jesus or seven self-affirming statements of Jesus. As Jordan alluded to last week, many in our society have differing perspectives on who Jesus was and is. Some say Jesus was a prophet. Some say he was a teacher. Some say God incarnate. Some say a social activist. Some say a life coach. Some might say this hippie type yoga instructor who grew up in Portland, Oregon. You know, it smelled like patchouli. Anybody like patchouli up in here? No, all the hippies in the house are like, yes, I love patchouli. We're like, I think Jesus smelled like patchouli. I'll be honest. We all have these different, per- nobody laughed. We're going to get you laughing this morning, okay? Or it's going to be a long time. It's going to take a long time. We all have these different views, do we not, of who Jesus is? All these ideas. You know, only 48% of millennials in a 2014, which is kind of older, a 2014 Barna study said Jesus was God, which means 52% did not believe that he was God. 17% percent specifically aren't even sure, believe who Jesus actually was, even though almost 90 percent believe that he was, in fact, a real historical person. I've said this before, we have more historical data about the person of Jesus than we do Alexander the Great, and no one questions the historicity of Alexander the Great, yet we have more historical research around the person of Jesus. But the question isn't if he was real or not. The question is, who in fact was he? David Kinnaman, the president of Barna Group, uh, directed this national study, and he made the statement that there isn't much argument 
about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous, good word, rancorous, debate. These findings, however, demonstrate the strong degree to which Jesus remains embedded in the minds of Americans. We are curious about the person of Jesus. Now, if you want to get a feel for what folks think of Jesus, um, just look at random Jesus t-shirts. There's all kinds of random t-shirts that got Jesus on them. My favorite, in fact, is this one here. Do you guys remember this one at Journeys? This was at Journeys. I remember growing up in middle school especially. Jesus is my homeboy. This is, I saw Ashton Kutcher wearing one. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. A lot of us have different ideas about who Jesus is. Matter of fact, I saw in, related to this, in relation to this t-shirt design, it was rated as the 35th greatest t-shirt design of all time from designhill.com. Pretty impressive, right? Jesus is my homeboy. And that baby thinks so as well, right? We got these different ideas about who we think Jesus is. Now, whether you believe that he was a prophet, a teacher, or God in the flesh, history's hinge is on the life of Jesus. The very date today, May 1st, 2022, is determined by the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And despite all of these clamoring thoughts and ideas about who we might think Jesus was and is, we wanted to explore in this teaching series who Jesus himself said he was. Not just what we think or what we say, but who did he say he was? Especially given the fact that we believe in the bodily resurrection. That's what Easter's all about, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And if he did, in fact, resurrect, then we must take seriously the claims of Christianity and more specifically what Jesus said and did. Everything hinges on that resurrection. It's futile, everything. If Jesus did not resurrect, Paul said that our message is foolish. It's futile, means nothing. But if he did, in fact, resurrect, we have to take seriously who he was and what he said. The great C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, last week, as I mentioned, Jordan opened the teaching series looking at specifically that Jesus is the bread of life. Think about your favorite bread and just imagine that Jesus is that. I don't know what is focaccia bread, right? Some kind of fancy 12-grain wheat bread. I don't know. French, whatever your favorite bread. Cinnamon roll, that's me, you know? Does that count? Cinnamon roll, it's bread. It's just got some icing on top. And the dude's sweet, right? Let's, let's just roll with cinnamon roll, okay? Jesus is the bread of life. He's the only substance that can satisfy our heart's deepest hunger, our deepest longing. He isn't just a matter of want in our life. He is a matter of need for living. When Jesus says he is the bread of life, he is saying that there is a deep need for all of us, specifically for him. We need bread for nourishment. And we need Jesus to live and to flourish as people. And this is why I believe that Jesus leaves us a meal as a way to remember him. 
He doesn't give us a book. He doesn't give us a YouTube link. He gives us a meal and a community as a representative place of communion and the presence. Now, in this second I am statement, Jesus makes the profession that he is the light of the world. Now, it's easy for us to jump to relatively simple conclusions as to what he might mean by such a statement. But we must take it within context provided for us as to why this statement carries so much weight for the ones that are hearing it. And if we aren't looking close enough, we might miss this, but John's gospel account is aligning Jesus in and around specific Jewish festivals and feasts, all of which Jesus makes statements or does certain actions that allude to him as being the festival's embodiment, as the fulfillment of the feast. In John chapter 7 and 8, is taking place tabernacles. Jerusalem at the time of Sukkot, or the festival of tabernacles, or the festival of booths. If you go read the first couple verses of John chapter 7, you will see that this is the time period of the, the chapter in the context historically. This specific festival was an annual pilgrimage to the holy city, one of three primary pilgrimages to the holy city, recognizing and honoring Yahweh's provision in the 40-year journey through the wilderness in the Exodus. More specifically, how the tabernacle was built in the wilderness. The place of God's dwelling was built, a tabernacle. And we are able to see in this festival this recognition of God's presence in a tent, so to speak. Now, this year, if you go to Brooklyn in October, Williamsburg specifically, you will see all types of these random booths in Williamsburg. I have a couple pictures up here for you to be able to see. Um, you can see the Sukkot Depot in Brooklyn to be able to buy materials so you can buy your tent because even to this day, Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn will build these little Sukkots or these little tents to commemorate the Festival of Tabernacles. And you will see along these apartment buildings, these Sukkots that are handmade and built. And they will pretty much do all of life for a week in these little booths outside of their apartment as a way to commemorate the festival of tabernacles. And in John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus is speaking in the middle of the seven-day pilgrimage and festival in the holy city. It was in this meandering through the wilderness that Yahweh guided the people of Israel by way of two things, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, it reads this, By day the Lord went ahead of them and a pillar of them light to guide them on their way, and by night and a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Now, it's one thing to try to follow a friend getting to a destination. 
You know how challenging it can be sometimes? You're trying to follow behind in a car a friend that's trying to get you to a certain destination, and they go through a yellow light, and you're like, why did you just do that? Now I'm stuck at a red light, and now you're a mile and a half down the road, and I don't know where you are. But imagine trying to follow behind a cloud during the day or a pillar of fire at night. might be a little easier than trying to follow a friend driving their Ford Focus to go to Target, Right? This is what this is commemorating in the Exodus. And here we have a very important point that must be made in conjunction to Jesus saying that he is the light of the world. For ancient Israel, light wasn't so much in connection to a lamp or even to the sun. Even though that was important, it was more deeply connected to the presence of of God, more specifically to the creator of light. So when Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world, he is effectually saying, I am the pillar of light. I am the pillar of light that was guiding you in the wilderness. That is me. And the idea of light appears also at the very beginning of the entire creation narrative, the entire creation story, the very reason it would have been so associated with Yahweh, with God. Just as now we associate light most of the time with Thomas Edison and the modern invention of the light bulb over a century ago. Yet for the Jew, it was the pillar of fire and light in the Exodus. And even more so, what we find in the Genesis creation story, specifically in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks and says, Let there be light. And there was light. This is the very first day of creation, and God just speaks, and there is light. Now, in the rest of the creation story, he's creating other things, and at the very end of each creation, he will say something to the effect of, and it was so. That doesn't happen here. One, one. The interesting part about this was that the earth had already been created in Genesis 1, 1, yet The sun and moon aren't even created until day four in verse 16 of Genesis chapter one. Do you see the paradox here or the tension? Sun and moon aren't created until verse 16. And yet in verse three, God says, let there be light. And there was light. Susie Silk, who's a a pastor as well as a Hebraic scholar, specifically in ancient Semitic languages, says that most rabbinic scholars believe that this revealed light was the presence of God himself, that it was the cloak and the glory of God that showed up. He had entered the scene. The tangible Light-filled presence of Yahweh was entering into the dark room in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. It's as though that light was actually never created. That God's presence just steps into the dark room and everything lights up. It's beautiful. 
Now, I have a, a painting I want you guys to be able to see that's from the 16th century that I think illustrates this moment here called The First Day of Creation by Francisco de Holanda. I think this is a beautiful depiction of light entering into the darkness, entering into the chaos. And it's as though the presence of God cloaked in light enters into a dark room. Psalm 104 says he wraps himself in light as with a garment. Ezekiel specifically says, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like, can you imagine just putting on light? Like you're trying to figure out what am I going to wear today? You know, what shirt? And God's like, dude, I wear light, okay? I wear light. That is my garment. That is my cloak. I wear light. Just as God is love, equally so, God is light. We oftentimes give much weight to the statement that God is love. That is very true. It's a divine attribute of God. God is love. But also, God is light. His presence is cloaked and covered with light. And this seems to be why John, with light, sanation with light. The writer John has a fascination with light. 16 times he uses the word light in this gospel account. Five times in the first 10 verses of John 1, or the prologue to the whole book. John seems to understand this idea of light, and he's so captivated by it. So when Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world, it again is drawing the crowd back to Genesis 1, where God is the creator of light. Now, also, ancient Jewish scholars believe that this specific light, this revealed light, the presence of God, was hidden after the sun and moon were created and would wait until the Messiah was to come. We see here in the wilderness as well, as I mentioned a bit ago, that in the Exodus, God's presence is in this pillar of fire at night. And so when Jesus is speaking in John chapter 8, he makes this statement, I am the light of the world, which we're like, okay, cool, for sure. Like your LED light bulb that you just can flip on and never goes off. Like, okay, fine, but there's deeper significance for the audience. There's deeper significance in the Jewish world. Like we might assume with our modern lens that, again, that light just has to do with maybe a bulb or a lamp, Jesus is quite literally saying, again, in connection to the Exodus story, I am the fire of the world. Because again, when a Jewish person would have thought about light, they're not thinking about LED bulbs. They're thinking about fire. And it's as though Jesus is saying, I am the fire of the world. And even more so, I am the embodied presence of God. This is another divine claim, right at the core of John's kind of thematic approach to this book. Luke chapter 12, verse 49, says this from the message paraphrase. I've come to start a fire on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. 
I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. One of the unique pieces about fire is that it purifies. It purifies precious metals. It refines. And Jesus comes to start a fire. He is the purifying fire. That when we go into his presence, he refines, he purifies. He burns off the dirt and presents us pure and clean or holy. One one quick thing to note specifically about this idea of fire is that fire begets fire. In other words, fire spreads. Fire starts other fires, does it not? A forest fire might only start from one single small hundreds and hundreds of spark. I remember a few months ago when Pilot Mountain caught on fire. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres, I believe, even, caught on fire. And they say it was traced back to just a little campfire. It was not fully put out. Fire spreads. Fire begets fire. And the fire of God has always been intended to catch people ablaze. The fire of God has always been meant to catch the people of God ablaze. We go back to the Emmaus story in Luke 24, where it says their hearts were what? Burning within them. Why? Because they're in the presence of God. They're in the presence of fire. And their hearts were burning within them. This is also why the spirit can be quenched. If the spirit can be quenched, this assumes the experience of the spirit is like that of fire. Because fire is quenched. And the spirit we know can be quenched. We as believers can quench or burn out the fire. Also, one of the things that fire requires to start is oxygen. Or when you're starting a fire in your little fire pit with your cute little setup behind your townhome, playing some folk music, some mandolin orange or whatever it may be. I don't know what you listen to. Um, you start to, what? You blow on the fire to get it going, do you not? The spirit is also connected to what? Wind as well. And so we see this connection between the wind, the spirit, and the fire of God. And fire begetting fire, fire spreading across the people of God. Like we are walking embers meant to be set on fire. Now, world, there's a statement here. Jesus says he is the light of the world. There's a couple of claims in this very short statement that I want to be able to highlight briefly. When he specifically says, that he is the light of the world. This is a Christo-exclusive claim. Okay? He isn't a light, but the light. This doesn't just sound like a good moral teacher. This doesn't just sound like some hippie yoga instructor. This isn't just a homeboy. This is a radical claim. He is the world's enlightenment. Jesus enlightens on all means of living. He enlightens us. This is a 
Christo-exclusive claim. He's saying, oh, I am the light of the world. I'm not just a light. I'm not just another great philosopher. I'm not just a great thinker. I'm not even just a great person. I'm not just a social activist. I'm not just a revolutionary. I'm not just a friend. I am the light of the world. The second, when he says that I am the light of the world, this is a Christo-inclusive claim. Because he isn't just the light of Israel. But he is the light of the entire world. The Greek word for world is cosmos. He is the light of the entire cosmos or the created order. Not just for Israel. So we see here this unique tension of this Christo-exclusive claim and this Christo-inclusive claim by him saying, I am the light of the world. Because he could say, I am a light in the world or I am the light of Israel. But he doesn't do that. He says, I am the light of the world. Bringing into tension both of these realities. Now, I want to look at three things that light is. And if Jesus is light... It means that he is these three things as well at minimum. Okay? Can we do that? Is that okay with you? All right, good. The first thing is that light, or Jesus, is revealing. Light is revealing. Now, I don't know about you, but often I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. How many of you is that? That's like an every night thing for you, yeah? We're a lot of young people. I've noticed my dad's in his 60s. That man's up three times a night going to the bathroom. Bless his heart. And I don't know about you, but I try my heart and sleep to, like, not turn a light on going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Like, I just, I'm being honest, you know, especially with Jordan sleeping. I don't want to turn a lamp on because it's going to wake her up. How many times have you kicked your foot on the bed or you stepped on a bone from your dog because they left it in your bedroom or you bumped your your head on something because you couldn't see. Has that ever happened to you? Or am I just like totally alone in that? Totally, totally alone? It's like two of you. Man, you guys are like, I don't know, man, nocturnal or something. This is interesting. I know often I will hit myself walking in the dark. It happens all of the time. But light is revealing. Light shows reality. Take a moment, close your eyes for just a second. Close your eyes. Right now, you are looking into the darkness. But there are things all around you that you can't see. There's carpet, there's microphones, there's people, there's a drum kit, there's TVs, there's a wall, there's lights in here. You can't see them, but they're real. And when you open your eyes and let light come in, it reveals what is actually there. It reveals reality. Drew Hyun, a pastor in New York, says, what Jesus came to do was to shed light on what is reality. On what is reality. And if light is reality, then darkness is non-reality. Jesus is simply revealing what is true. We'll come to that point later in the I am statements. He is revealing what is and what is there. 
This is why, honestly, I'm so fascinated by people who get all up in arms about the church being full of, like, moral corruption and hypocrisy. Fascinates me to some degree. Because when Jesus shows up, the darkness in the community gets exposed. People walking in darkness are not going to notice darkness. But when you walk into the light, dirt starts to show up. Sin starts to show up. Why do we get all up in arms about there being issues in the church? It's part of our role to bring out the dirt, to reveal the brokenness so that we might experience healing. You know, the next time someone talks to you, like, it's the church full of hypocrites. I'm like, that's part of it. To expose reality, which is light. Darkness, you don't see other things in front of you. You don't see it, darkness. But the church is light. Christ is in the room. He's going to reveal things. You're going to get exposed. I'm going to be exposed. We're going to be exposed together because of the light of Christ in the community. It's part of what it means to be engaged in the local church is to be exposed to and revealed by the light. And Dr. Tom Wright says, Jesus reveals five things specifically in his ministry. I'm going to go through these very quickly. And keep in mind, the idea of revealing is also connected to revelation. Revelation means to reveal, okay? Here are five things briefly that Jesus reveals. He reveals God's heart. He reveals Israel's Messiah. He reveals a new hermeneutic, which that's just fancy Bible language for translating the scriptures. The fourth is that he reveals a new ethic or new way of living. And the fifth thing is that he reveals judgment. Now, in John chapter 3, we get a more clear picture of this judgment that Jesus, Jesus reveals. John 3, verse 19 through 21, reads this. It's on the screen for you. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be what? Exposed. Keep this in mind. This is deeply important theologically for all of us. Jesus doesn't condemn. Jesus reveals. And revelation is not the same thing as condemnation. Condemnation is putting someone into a certain place by force. Jesus doesn't do that. He just turns a light on and reveals that most of us are already walking in condemnation on our own. Because we love the darkness. Sin is good, man. Sin feels good, tastes good. And Jesus just reveals that that thing that you think tastes good is actually on the inside, eating you up like a parasite. And he just simply reveals. He doesn't condemn. He says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. But because he's light, he does reveal You know, the very first step in AA, which AA has been very successful for decades, is to reveal your addiction, to confess it in a group. Confession in a community is revealing. And confession brings healing. 
Confession is our conscious decision to reveal the darkness inside of us and bring light to it. So you want a practical way to engage in allowing the light to enter into your heart and mind and spirit? Start confessing the darkness that's there. The second thing is that light is dynamic. Light is dynamic. Light moves. Basic science, right? Light moves. Light travels. And light will find any crack or crevice possible to get in. You think about that one spot in your blinds that always lets the morning sun in. Like Even though your blinds are closed tight, there's always that one little spot that's just beaming right in your eye as you're trying to wake up slowly. You guys know what I'm talking about? I know for me, even growing up, though, my mom was the kind of mom who woke us up by opening the blinds. That's just the way she did it. And she was singing in the morning. Anybody have parents that sang in the morning? Oh, I hated it. It's the worst way ever to wake up. And she's turning it in the blinds open. I'm like, Mom, I, I, stop. What are you doing? You know, you pull the cover up over your head. And my wife always says, five more minutes, Mom. She still does that to me today. Five more minutes, please. Light moves. Light gets in. It finds crevices. And for Jesus to say that he is the light of the world, he is making not only a divine claim, but a missional one as well. Jesus is on the move. We see that that he is the embodiment of the temple. He is the embodiment of this pillar of fire. The pillar of fire moved in the Old Testament, and Jesus moves in the gospel account from Galilee to Jerusalem and all around Judea. Fire is on the move, so to speak. And we know for a fact that light moves. And a key mistake that we often make is to assume that light and dark are equal opposites. And that is a dualistic understanding, that they are two equal powers on either side. But that is not true philosophically. Darkness isn't an equal opposite. Rather, it is just the absence of light. Light and dark is not yin and yang, okay? And there is this idea right now, and I think at our moment, where, where we're kind of like, all of us have a little bit of light and dark inside of us. As though they're like two different compartments. No, they're always competing with each other. And darkness is merely the absence of light. And the actual, from the dictionary, that's not a subjective opinion. Go look up the actual definition of darkness. It is the absence of light. Darkness isn't dynamic. Darkness doesn't move. Light does. Light moves. I love the famous Dr. Martin Luther King quote where he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light drives out darkness. Darkness, do you know, friends, is created by putting up walls and making blocks. That's how darkness is created, by putting up walls and blocking the light. And for many, even in this room today, your experience with Jesus is but an experience with his shadow. You think you're experiencing Jesus, the person of Jesus, but what you actually are experiencing is his shadow. Much like the Peter Pan 
movie. You guys seen the original Peter Pan cartoon movie when he's like wrestling with his shadow? Many of us, because our back is turned to the person of Jesus, we are blocking his light and a shadow is created. Light doesn't create shadows. An object does. And often we turn our back on Jesus and we're more comfortable with his shadow than we are with the actual person. And a lot of us in the space today, honestly, I think are blocking light in our heart, blocking light in our mind because of what it might reveal. And we're just experiencing Jesus' shadow. And he's like, no, 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 I want you to repent, which repentance means to what? Turn around. Huh, that's good preaching. <laughs> Turn around. You want to experience light? Repent. Turn around. Change your direction. Change which way you're moving. Sure, you can experience Jesus, but it may only be in a shadow. He wants you to experience him in his fullness, in his whole personhood. You can't hug a shadow. And here's what's fascinating about a shadow. It's always in the opposite direction. So many of us, I think, are moving in the opposite direction. We think we're following Jesus, but it's actually a shadow. He's calling you to turn and to repent. The third thing, third and final thing here, is that light is life-giving. Light is life-giving. When light enters into the universe, it is the beginning of life as we know it. Plants and vegetation come in the third day prior to the sun and the moon. Meaning that this light in this, you know, photos some sort of life-giving, life-extending element to it. You know, photosynthesis, for all my biology nerds out there, which I did terrible in biology, so please give me grace when I talk about photosynthesis, okay? Photosynthesis is the process, actually, I just copied and pasted the definition, okay? Photosynthesis is the process used by plants and other organisms to convert light energy into chemical energy that, through cellular respiration, can later be released to fuel the organism's activities. The word photo, the prefix, comes from the Greek word for light, which is phos, P-H-O-S. And synthesis means to put together. Light creates life. And where did we come from as humans? The ground. It's as though we are some sort of plant as well. And the light of Christ extends life to us. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This is actually one of the very ways that Christ accomplishes his work on the cross. The very mechanism that brings peace and salvation. Have you ever wondered how Christ accomplished work on the cross? How Christ was able to accomplish salvific work on the cross. We understand he died on the cross. We understand he loved us. But how was he able to accomplish redemption? Here is one idea. This is from uh, theologian Josh McNall. The divine nature was brought into contact with death so that death itself was canceled out by way of divine life in the same way that darkness is expelled by turning on a light. When Jesus goes into the tomb, into the grave, he flips the light on. Because he is eternal life, when eternal life enters into death, it cancels death itself. That's a, full, that's a basic math equation, okay? It's canceling out death because he is eternal life. And because he is light and darkness does not move, light enters into the room and conquers the darkness. Okay, this is how Christ, victory of Christ on the cross. This is basic atonement theology. 
okay? This is how Christ is able to bring peace and oneness because he is light entering into the darkness and he's conquering it by flipping the light on. Flipping the light on. And darkness encounters light. Darkness is always conquered. When eternal life encounters death, death is conquered. So listen, friends. Keep the light on. Now, let me tell you something. In my house, I love to keep every single light on possible. (laughs) Some of us act like it really changes our electricity bill. Do your math. It doesn't. (laughs) It really doesn't. I married my wife, and I remember at night, at times, we'd be watching a movie, and it's just like one lamp on, and it's like nine o'clock, and I'm like, this is not, no, like, this is not it. And I'm over there flipping up all the lamps on, all the lights on. I've come to some of your houses before, and it's nighttime, and I'm like, why are all the lights off? I can't even see you right now. Like, I'm squinting to even talk to you. I love lights. I always joke with my wife that sin creeps in in the darkness, I always find it fascinating. I was an RA in college, and um, I would do my rounds in my dorm, and we were at a Christian college, so it was kind of weird with all these different rules and stuff, and I'd have to go in when we had these open nights for, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends to come over, and all the lights are off, and y'all watching a movie, and I'm like, I know for a fact this is not producing wisdom or producing life or producing peace or wholeness. I know for a fact that there's some temptation in this room because there is no lights on. There is a reason why turning the light off sets a mood, right? Light penetrates darkness. Turn the light on. Jesus doesn't stop, though, with the statement of saying he is the light of the world. It is then packaged together and applied to how a person is to live. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, we see the tension between the Christo-inclusive claim and the Christo-exclusive claim because he says, whoever, whoever follows me, there is the inclusivity of the whoever and there's the exclusivity of me, will never, which is not just an idea, this is a stated promise. Never in the Greek means never. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. As I said earlier, part of Jesus' mission, yes, was to establish the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Because those who walk in darkness don't know which way they are going. And some of you came in here today, and let's just be totally transparent. You don't know which way you will follow the way. I want to provide a way for you. Light is not only meant to illuminate, but often it's illuminated for the sake of direction. Try driving at night without your headlights on. I've done it before. It's not very helpful. Light is used often for direction and for the sake of a path. When we follow the way and teaching of Jesus as put forth in the scriptures, it is as though we walk in this life with headlights on because he is now in us and he's showing us the way. The story of God, the larger story that we find ourselves in, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, is guiding us. Society says to blaze your own trail. That's what the culture preaches at us. Blaze your own trail. Okay, fine. But it's exhausting. It's arduous. 
And it's ridden with fear and anxiety. You know, uh, in sociology, there's this idea called plausibility structures. Meaning all of us have some sort of given framework from our culture in terms of how we achieve purpose and meaning. And we follow in that. None of us are totally autonomous. We don't just blaze our own trail. Because when someone tells you to blaze your own trail, what you're doing is you're taking their advice and not your own. So the idea of blazing your own trail is actually this false dichotomy. So anyway, to that end, I think it's much more liberating and freeing and life-giving to be able to say, Jesus has been here before. He's laid down the path of life. Let me follow into it. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my what? Path. As followers of the way, as I begin to kind of wrap up this morning, we possess the light of life. Because he specifically says here that when we follow him, we will never walk in darkness, but we will have, we will possess the light of life. Or as the original language alludes to, the real life. So when Jesus possesses you and I, we also possess him and his light. Because we are yoked together, we are bound to him. We are united with him. So when we're yoked with someone that's got a flashlight, praise God. And here's the thing. He's been there before, and it's as though he comes back and says, now let's walk the road together with a flashlight. How many of you have been in the darkness, and you're with a friend, and they got their cell phone because you forgot yours, and they pulled their phone out because they have a light on it? And you're like, praise God for this iPhone. Thank you, Lord, that there is a flashlight on my iPhone because now we can see in the dark. Jesus is able to provide for us because we are yoked with him, the light of life. But quenching the spirit is to turn the light off. And you can turn the light off. You can, in your freedom and agency, turn the light off. 1 John 1, verse 5 through 9 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim with our mouth, to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness. We lie and do not live out the truth. Here is our greatest problem in the Western society. Proclamation that doesn't match up with action. Verbal proclamation, lack of obedience. It's a cognitive dissonance between what we believe with our mind and how we actually live. You don't know what a person really believes until you look at how they live. Okay? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we walk in this way and trust in Jesus, we then become, as John writes, children of light. And we also become as well, and Jesus makes this statement in the Sermon on the Mount, we become the light of the world. And the very Vocational call to the entire people of Israel in the Old Testament was to be, as Isaiah 49, 6 says, a light to the nations. With Christ in us, we are meant to be the light of the world, shining light into the dark spaces so people can actually see reality. And it can be revealed to them. Same goes for us. There's a missional impulse in this idea of being the light of the world. That wherever we go, because Christ's light is in us, if the light is on, we are shining that light in the places of darkness we find ourselves in. So there are three questions I want to close with. I'm going to get Anderson to come on up. The first question is this. Am I living in darkness? 
Am I living in darkness? Darkness being evil, sin, brokenness. Am I living in darkness? I loved talking to Rebecca and Aaron's family last week, talking about living in Seattle. You ever met someone who's lived in the Pacific Northwest before? And they've talked to you about the weather. It's gray. It doesn't, like, the sun doesn't shine a lot. And it does something to a person's mental health. Like, it's insane. Let alone Alaska. We have friends living in Alaska. Whoo, that's tough. Mentally. Why? Because we're meant to live in the light. We're meant to operate in the light. Are you living in darkness, friend, today? And I hope that even in me proclaiming that, asking that, it's light shining into your own life so you can actually answer that question. The second is, am I blocking the light? You know what you need to tell your sin in your life? Get out of the way. You're blocking my light. Tell the sin in your life, get out of my light. Get out of my light. Are you blocking the light? Is your back turned towards the light of Christ? Are you just engaged with the shadow? Are you engaged with the real person of Jesus? And the third and final question is, am I living as light? Am I living as light in this world? Is the light turned on in my life? Is the light turned on in my, co- in my workspace with my coworkers? Is the light turned on in my family? Or do I go into some spaces and I turn the light off? Do I go to some environments and I turn the light off because I don't want them to see? Are we willing to be honest to shed light on the brokenness that we find ourselves in, both in micro-realities and macro-realities as the people of God? Be able to shed light on the injustices or things that aren't right in this world. Given, uh, given the picture of the kingdom, or do we just turn the light off? Those are three important questions. Am I living in darkness? Am I blocking the light? Am I, and, and am I living as light? Because here's the reality. In a dark room, just a small candle exposes the darkness of a large room. And listen, the magnitude of the darkness means nothing for the minute smallness of the candle. A little flicker of a candle can help light an entire room. And light is made manifest in our life through word and deed. Through word and deed. And we're able to find the reality of truth in the scriptures laid out before us. I love in Revelation 21, at the very end of this story we see John say I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light did you hear me for the glory of y'all not hear me the glory of God Gives it like the Shekinah glory of light illuminates all of the new creation so that when we enter into it, into eternity, there will be no sun and moon because God's glory is providing light 24-7. The light never goes out. So let's pray together this morning.